Welcome to the Birthful Podcast. I'm Adriana Lozada, and to continue on our breastfeeding kick, today we're going to be talking about low milk supply. Low milk supply, whether real or perceived, can seriously impact the breastfeeding relationship. I'll be talking with Diana Kassar all to help us navigate the constellations of reasons that may cause it and possible solutions. Stay tuned. This episode of Birthful is brought to you by the first eight days of being a mom, a day-by-day manual on taking care of the new mom as well as her newborn. Get a 10% discount by going to thefirst8days.com slash birthful. That's with the number eight, thefirst8days.com slash birthful. The Birthful Podcast, talking to maternity pros to inform your intuition. Hello, mamas and mamas-to-be. Thanks so much for all the love you're giving the show. Let me give you a quick reminder to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, even if that's not how you usually listen to it. Um, that'll allow us to get it in front of more mamas. And while you're there, why not leave a review? I will be forever grateful. All right. So today I have Diana Kassar all with me to talk about low milk supply. Diana is a first-year doctoral student in maternal and child health with a research interest in infant infant and child nutrition. She has been helping breastfeeding families since 2005 as a La Leche League leader, an international board-certified lactation consultant, educator, author, and researcher. She blogs at dianaibclc.com and is the author of Finding Sufficiency, Breastfeeding with Insufficient Glandular Tissue from... This is so hard. From Preclaris Press. That's a lot of peas together there. (laughs) Mother of three school-aged children, Diana splits her time between her home in upstate New York and her academic and professional pursuits in the Washington, D.C. area. Diana, welcome. Thanks for having me, Adriana. I'm so happy you're here. So let's jump right into it. What is considered a low milk supply? Well, that's a really good question. Um, Low milk supply is how we describe the situation Um, where a mother, after she has her baby, doesn't produce enough breast milk to exclusively breastfeed her baby, only her milk. Um, This most often occurs when breastfeeding isn't properly managed. So like when the baby's not brought to his mother's breast often enough or when he cues to breastfeed or sometimes when a family tries to use a pacifier to space out the feedings or maybe get the baby to sleep longer than he's ready um, before he's developmentally and physiologically ready. Um, It can also happen when breastfeeding seems to be going well, but um, sometimes the baby's not able to transfer milk from his mother's breast very well, efficiently or adequately, Um, maybe because something's going on in his mouth or he has a sucking problem. So the mother's body thinks there's no demand for the milk and slows down how much it makes. And that's what happens, too, when mothers try and schedule feeds. You know, the body, um, you know, the baby actually needs milk more frequently, but the body isn't being told to produce and release it as often. Um, Mothers who separate from their babies for long periods of time, like, um, like when they go back to school or work, sometimes they notice a decline in how much milk they make and they might eventually reach a point where they feel like they're not keeping up with what their babies take. But in most of these cases, the milk starts out plentiful, 
and then supply dwindles after maybe a few days or weeks or sometimes even months. Like a mom might go three months with, um, you know, plenty of milk, and then, um, you know, at that three-month mark, she might feel like she has low milk supply. So when we talk about low milk supply, we're usually talking about a situation um, where a mother's body, for any number of reasons, um, even under the most ideal of circumstances, and even if she's doing everything right, even if breastfeeding management is going well, mom and baby are together enough, and mom's able to effectively express milk when they're apart, um, sometimes those sometimes moms don't produce enough milk to exclusively nourish their babies. Um, we call that primary lactation insufficiency, and it can happen um, sometimes because a mom has had surgery or trauma, like a car accident when she was younger, uh, to her chest or breasts, or because her breasts didn't develop appropriately during puberty or didn't change during pregnancy, or because her hormones are out of whack and lactation isn't happening as it otherwise might. Okay, so then what you're saying is that there are a lot of different ways that low milk supply can be a factor um, and that it may be a product of behavioral circumstances such as, you know, breastfeeding frequency or the effects of going back to work, for example, or that it can be physically related to the baby's or the mom's body. So then my question would be, how common is it for a woman to be unable to physically produce enough milk? Well, this is really the million-dollar question. Um, no one knows for sure how prevalent these anatomical or physiological reasons, so dealing with, um, you know, breast anatomy or even the baby's oral anatomy, or physiological, so dealing with hormones or, um, or other, you know, primary reasons for primary lactation failure. Um, no one really knows how prevalent those are in the general population or even exactly why it happens for each mom. So we've got some research that can give us a few plausible theories um, for why and how low milk supply happens. But um, what's really frustrating is that for every risk factor that we're able to identify in a mother who isn't producing enough milk, we also will see moms who produce plenty of milk, even with some of those same risk factors. So we're not able to conclusively say, you know, if a mom has characteristic A, um, she's not going to produce milk because another mom with characteristic A may not have any problems at all. So um, since there are so many variables that can affect a mother's milk supply, you know, including what we've already discussed, like that, you know, the removal, you know, the, um, the, the re frequent removal of milk, um, that's part of it, and, you know, lots of other variables that affect how much milk a mother makes. Mm -hmm. After a certain point, it becomes nearly impossible to determine whether a mother could have produced enough milk to exclusively breastfeed if she had gotten support or help early enough, or if, you know, it's also hard for us to know if the milk supply started out fine and then went away, or if there was really truly an issue with the mother's body that caused her to be able to, uh, to be unable to exclusively breastfeed. So there's one kind of famous um, or infamous, depending on who you ask, um, estimate that 5% of women won't be able to produce enough milk just because of some, you know, inherent primary uh, factor. But more recent research seems to point to that number being at least a little bit higher, closer to maybe 8 to 15% or even as many as one in five when we take into account 
some of the risk factors that seem to be leading to low milk supply for some mothers, such as thyroid issues, um, other problems with the reproductive hormones, and obesity. So sometimes people try and push me to say whether a mother just needs to try harder and whether she could, you know, with a lot of work and effort, get her breasts to eke out enough milk so that she doesn't have to supplement. And um, I don't really like this approach because I don't think I get to be the person who gets to determine um, whether a mother tries hard enough or does enough things. So it's true that there are going to be some mothers who are more sensitive to some of the things that might affect milk supply um, than the majority of mothers. So most mothers can handle a bump in the road in those first few days. So if there's, for example, you know, a bad start to breastfeeding, like in the hospital, or if the baby's in the NICU and they have to be separated, you know, for most mothers, that's going to be just a temporary setback. Um, because when things get back on track, their milk supply will rebound and everything will be fine. Um, but for some mothers, that's not going to happen. And not every mother is going to have the, the time, the support, or the motivation to really take extraordinary measures and pull out all the stops and spend more time than is normal to rebound from something like that. Or even if something like that doesn't happen, um, just spend more time than normal to make a full milk supply, even if she could. So, you know, there are definitely some people who would consider these mothers as not really having low milk supply, but I'm not sure I'd agree with them because, you know, full-time attention to the maintenance of milk supply isn't really the same thing as, um, you know, breastfeeding on a baby's schedule. And, yes, that baby's schedule often is not our schedule. It often calls for a lot more feedings than we're culturally conditioned to think they need. But that's the normal course of breastfeeding. If everything else is normal anatomically and physiology for the mother and the baby, and the baby's breastfeeding effectively and well 10 to 12 times in 24 hours, if those things don't bring in or sustain a full milk supply, that's not the normal course of breastfeeding even if the mom taking extraordinary measures, pumping, taking supplements, um, you know, doing lots of other things to bring in that full milk supply um, could, could help her. But again, you know, I don't know who gets to wear the magic hat and draw the line on where extraordinary measures start and where appropriate commitment to breastfeeding ends. So I think really counting the prevalence of low milk supply um, in our population is uh, it, it'll always be sort of a controversial uh, question. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we need to remember that it's a relationship that happens between mom and baby, and it needs to work out for all the parties involved. Um, information, preparation, support can be helpful, as you've mentioned, but the individual circumstances that a mom may be facing need to be taken into account as well. So expanding on that, Low milk supply is often listed as one of the top reasons for moms having stopped breastfeeding. Can you speak a bit about what may be going on in those circumstances? Oh, absolutely. Um, and more accurately, like just to kind of um, talk about how the research talks about it, concerns about milk supply is reported as a top reason mothers stop breastfeeding. So it's not necessarily confirmed that they um, that they actually weren't making enough milk, but there's 
um, a definite sense that there are mothers who think they're not producing enough, even though they might be producing plenty of milk. Um, and in our culture, this is really common, and um, it's called perceived insufficient milk syndrome. Like, it's actually a thing that, um, that authors have, um, you know, researchers have authored papers on. You could go into PubMed and do a search and come up with perceived insufficient milk syndrome. Um, and it's what happens when our expectations of what normal newborn feeding behaviors should be don't really match the reality. And I like to, I mean, sometimes this dates me a little bit, but I like to talk about um, what I call the Friends phenomenon. So if you remember the TV show Friends, mm -hmm. um, when Rachel was pregnant, you know, like we were all about Rachel's pregnancy and, you know, then she had the baby. And like in the next episode, they're all down at Central Park and like the baby's not there. And, you know, it's just sort of really reflective of what our culture, you know, how our culture sort of portrays what parenthood is like, you know, like the baby was born and the, the reality is not what was represented in this, um, you know, really iconographic television show. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, our culture is really used to artificial feeding. I mean, so few of us um, had mothers or grandmothers that actually breastfed us. Um, and, you know, most of the time, our mothers and grandmothers are the ones saying, but that baby just ate. He can't be hungry already. Um, so even some healthcare providers are telling us that our babies should be fed on a schedule or a certain number of minutes per side. Um, and, you know, that's just not the reality. That's not how babies are going to do things. Um, every baby is going to be different. And I've seen a lot of families really struggle when they either try and space out feedings by giving the baby a pacifier because someone told them, don't feed the baby unless, you know, more often than every three hours. And that baby an hour and a half later wants to nurse, but, you know, pop in the pacifier so it stays quiet. Or a lot of times also when they try and sleep train their babies to sleep through the night, which is really defined as more than four or five hours at a stretch, not these 11, 12-hour through the night that we've come to culturally sort of desire. So mm -hmm. when that happens, when the baby isn't, able to have free and open access to the breast, milk supply can go down, um, especially in these moms that are a little more vulnerable to that supply and demand, um, you know, that supply and demand feature. Um, so baby might stop gaining weight, uh, might also stop really queuing to feed. And by the time a mother realizes what's happening, the original problem isn't totally clear anymore. So also going with the perceived insufficient milk syndrome, a lot of times normal infant behavior is mistaken for hunger or dissatisfaction. Um, a lot of moms will be really upset and they'll say, oh, the, you know, the baby doesn't like me and he hates breastfeeding. But um, I feel so bad for these moms because there's no one in the world that those babies love more than their mama. It's just, you know, when we, you know, when we have a fussy baby, we immediately try to blame the breastfeeding or we try and blame the thing that we know the least about. So a common problem that um, I've seen with, uh, with some families is that sometimes the only time a baby actually gets held is when he's fed. So babies, you know, they come into this world needing lots of touch and cuddles and, um, you know, if we're afraid of spoiling the baby or making him dependent on us, you know, how many of us have heard 
you know, someone, a family member or a friend saying, you know, don't pick up the baby, don't, don't spoil him, he'll, he'll start to get to know that everything he wants he's going to get, but, you know, we'll resist holding him or letting him sleep on us, and, um, you know, we might not use a wrap or a soft carrier, but that baby fusses to be held, and then we mistake that for hunger. Or the baby might really need to suck, and that's one of the great things about breastfeeding. Babies don't have a lot of ways to understand their world, and sucking is one of those ways. Um, so, you know, babies really have a high sucking need, and when the baby is able to do that on the breast, um, there's non-nutritive sucking that the baby can do where he's not necessarily hungry, but he can latch onto the breast and do this non-nutritive sucking and still have his sucking needs met, and the mom's getting some good stimulation, which is really good for her milk supply, but he's not really taking in a whole meal. He might just be taking in a little snack. So that's one of the reasons we encourage new moms um, not to introduce a pacifier in the early weeks of breastfeeding because the more the baby is on his mother's breasts and having his sucking needs met there, that's going to be better for both of them. And, you know, finally, the perceived insufficient milk syndrome is really exacerbated when, you know, there's a lot of babies that even after they're done nursing, um, if someone offers them a bottle, that baby's going to chow down, that baby's going to chug several ounces of either, you know, pumped breast milk or breast milk substitute from that bottle. So that must mean he was hungry, but that's not necessarily true. And again, this goes back to sort of that sucking instinct. Um, the baby's going to instinctively suck on whatever triggers him to do so. So in those cases, if those families stick a finger in their baby's mouth or put the other breast in the baby's mouth or even a pacifier, the baby's going to chow down on, you know, the baby's going to suck vigorously on whatever is put in his mouth because that's instinctively what he knows how to do. And that's not necessarily a cue for hunger. It just means he needed to suck. So, um, and again, like in our culture, I really, I can't blame the families because we as a culture are so used to bottle feeding where we're able to look at the bottle and know how many ounces the baby took. We don't have that on our breasts. We can't look at our breasts and say, oh, yeah, you know, the baby took this many ounces at this time. And, um, you know, we just don't know. Um, we don't know for sure that the baby should or shouldn't be hungry at a certain time because breastfeeding is really more... Like you said, it's more of a relationship. There are other reasons that a baby would cue to come to the breast besides just hunger. And, you know, just, again, culturally, we just haven't really been taught to trust our babies and our bodies as much as the breastfeeding process might require us to do if it's not something we're already familiar with as the norm. Absolutely. And I really appreciate you bringing up the fact of these being babies' instinctual needs, the need to be held, the need to to suck, and that, well, that, with that whole concept of spoiling the baby, I, um, whenever that comes up, I usually bring to your attention the fact that this baby is a couple of days old. This baby doesn't even know it's an eye. This baby doesn't know those are his right, hands. Exactly. <laughs> like, forget about trying to manipulate manipulate you. This baby has no idea that those hands hitting its its face when it gets really fussy and wound up are his. That you know he's doing that. So I appreciate the the bringing that up about being um, instinctive needs for sure. Um, so what can families do in this in these instances when the mother's ability to produce enough milk isn't actually the problem, that it's something else? 
Well, the number one thing that we always do, no matter how I'm offering breastfeeding support, the number one answer, first answer is always nurse the baby whenever he cues to feed. And sometimes after a while, the baby has learned not to cue because those cues haven't been answered for a period of time. So in most cases, I recommend to families that they have as much skin-to-skin time or as much close time as possible. And, um, you know, that doesn't always have to be with mom, but, um, you know, it's best if it is with mom. But, uh, you know, like a wrap or a soft carrier, those are really good if mom, you know, like if you want to make lunch or, you know, um, do something else in the house or go for a walk. It's just it's nice to be able for the baby to still be close um, and, other caregivers can do this too. And, um, you know, right after a feeding or if the baby is being cared for by someone else for part of the day, um, you know, someone else can wear the baby in a wrap. But just that human-to-human contact is so vital for babies so that they get back in touch with their instincts and the, and the cues that they want to do. So that skin-to-skin or even just that closeness reminds the baby of what he should be doing to keep up his end of the bargain with milk supply. So when he's on mom, he can smell her, he can hear her heartbeat, he can sleep there and relax, and as soon as he wakes up, he's reminded of milk. Um, Some families like to take a nursing vacation where mom and baby stay in bed for a weekend, just sleeping and nursing, and let other people, let, let the people that are supporting you take care of everything else. You know, when a mom has a new baby, everyone wants to come over and hold the baby. No, let them come over and do the laundry. Like, let them come over and make dinner. Um, it's really important for, uh, you know, in those early, early days for mom to be the one, uh, you know, staying as close to the baby as possible. And depending on how old the baby is, a nursing vacation might be enough to get things back on track as long as the breast is offered on demand after that. And no one is trying to, like, space out feedings. No one's trying to get the baby to hold out longer between feedings. Now, if the mom and baby are separated, or if there's a reason the baby can't breastfeed at mom's breasts, for, you know, for example, if the baby has an injury or was born not able to suck, um, you know, sometimes this happens with premature babies, um, expressing milk at regular intervals is absolutely vital. And that's a lot of times, and it's often... Um, surprising to new moms when someone tells them they really need to be expressing milk well. So that's with either hand expression or um, or a pump that is going to be very effective. And not all pumps are. So working with someone to figure out what pump is the best for that individual situation, at least 10 to 12 times in 24 hours. And as the baby gets older, that frequency might not be as necessary, especially if he's Um, being breastfed at the breast even part of the time and mom's milk supply gets established well. And, um, you know, another thing that I recommend to families that are, you know, feeling like milk supply is going down um, and it's not inherently an issue with the mom, uh, letting baby nurse through the night if he asks is also a good way to make sure he's getting all he needs. And the new La Leche League book called Sweet Sleep Um, It has some really great suggestions for breastfeeding families who want to continue breastfeeding but also want to get some rest because that's definitely a priority in those early days. And there are ways to make both things happen for sure.
Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And we had uh, Teresa, Teresa Pittman here on the show before also talking to us about the safer co-sleeping um, oh, or bed right. sharing. Yeah. Oh, perfect. Oh, good. Yeah. She came and she told us all the, the safer bed sharing um, recommendations. That was I love that that show. It was I love all the shows, of course, but she's great. <laughs> Um, so just to clarify, can you briefly name some of the ways that babies can cue um, when they want to nurse? Because I don't think this is something that can be said often enough. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, a lot of families think that the baby is only hungry by the time he starts crying. But that's so not true. Like a lot of times babies will start cueing to feed while they're still asleep. So they might start shaking their head back and forth, or sometimes they'll um, sort of put their hands up and open and close their fists, or um, they might start making little sucking movements with their mouth. That was always one of my favorite ones, when I would hear my babies starting to sort of smack their lips together. It was like they were dreaming about nursing. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, you know, those are some of the really early cues, um, you know, for a really little baby. As the babies get a little bit older, they start finding other nonverbal ways to let us know that they want to nurse and they, you know, that they're hungry. But in the early days, those are, those are some reliable early feeding cues. Okay. And you also mentioned um, the nursing vacation. When would you say a nursing vacation alone is not as effective in getting things back on track? Like when is the baby is a little bit too old for that to be something that puts everything back in its place? Well, milk supply is typically established. Um, and I mean, this could be this could be give or take some time, but generally if we see a baby like past the, um, I mean, I hate to really put a definite mm-hmm. time limit on it, but um, I like to tell moms that that first like six to eight weeks is really vital. And that's when the foundation is laid for any future milk making with that baby. So, um, you know, if we kind of get past the two-month mark, I mean, I wouldn't say that things are um, things are helpless, but I think it would really depend on, um, you know, what's going on for that particular family, what was her milk making capacity to begin with, um, you know, what sort of derailed things and. How long did that go on for? So, I mean, there's there's a lot of things to consider, but generally if I see a baby that's, um, you know, there are, I have seen cases where there's like a six-month-old baby who um, was starting solids and maybe things weren't going well, but the mom didn't really keep up with breastfeeding as much, and she was able to sort of bring it back. But the supply and demand is really sort of set, you know, the the, the foundation for the milk supply is really sort of set by around that six or eight week mark. So that's really when things are going to be most effective. Those early days, which are the hardest, um, just emotionally and logistically are also the ones where um, breastfeeding management is really the most important. Um, That's really when, that's the window when it's really important to get things as right as they can be gotten. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so back to our, our low milk supply, one, so what about when the cause is physical in nature? What if there's actually something going on with mom's body that's causing her not to make enough milk? What can she do then? 
Okay, so this is um, this is a really interesting research area, and um, because there's so many different things that can go wrong with lactation, like I mean, it's important to sort of keep in the front of our minds that they that these things don't happen with huge frequency, but they do happen, just like with any other body process, like circulation or digestion. You know, lactation is a body process, and it's not, like, magically protected and universally stable. So, um, you know, that is important to keep in mind. There are things that, that can cause it to, um, you know, that there are things that can cause lactation dysfunction. Um, and it's also important to remember that lactation is largely driven by our endocrine system. So all of those hormones, and it's extremely complex. Um, so mothers who have or suspect any problems with their hormones, such as their thyroid, um, if they have any fertility issues like trouble getting or staying pregnant, or um, the research is starting to really demonstrate a link between prediabetes or type 2 diabetes, so really anything where insulin is kind of the problem, um, any moms with these issues really need to get them figured out and either treated or corrected before they get pregnant. And that's not just for the lactation outcomes, but really for, for all of the outcomes, for pregnancy and for just living a healthy, normal life. Um, sometimes getting these things worked out after the baby is born does help, but I've not really seen a lot of families that have only one issue. Like when it's an endocrine issue, um, there are typically uh, more than one, there's more than one thing going on because of just the nature of the endocrine system, how everything is so interdependent. Um, you know, a mom might have thyroid issues and get that fixed, and she might see an increase in her milk supply, but not all the way. So, um, you know, it's just really important to uh, kind of keep that aspect in mind, the endocrine aspect. And then there are mothers that I see who... Um, you know, barely produce any milk at all. They might get just drops of milk or maybe a couple ounces a day, like, you know, less than five ounces a day. Um, some of these moms have taken to calling themselves micro-producers. Um, and what I'm starting to notice in my own research is that many of these mothers are also insulin-resistant, which is another term for prediabetes. Um, and it's important to note that this condition is often associated with a high body mass index or being very overweight, but not always. And I really need to stress this because um, it can very easily be misunderstood and misconstrued, but not all women with a high body mass index are going to have trouble breastfeeding because of insulin resistance. And also on the flip side of that, not all women with insulin resistance and trouble breastfeeding are going to be overweight. So, um, you know, for many, these conditions do coexist, but overweight is not 100% in all cases going to be a proxy for insulin resistance. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, a lot of physicians don't necessarily screen for prediabetes. So someone could be very lean and not, you know, have an outward appearance of having um, insulin issues but there might be something going on under the surface. So um, this is sort of related to women with um, what used to be called, and it's the, so 
the U.S. is trying to come up with a new name for this, but polycystic ovarian syndrome, which may or may not actually deal with polycystic ovaries, so that's why they're trying to find another name. Like, there are other markers for the syndrome, but it's often underdiagnosed or misdiagnosed because a mom could maybe, you know, a mom could have it but not have those cysts on her ovaries. But these women who, you know, either have been diagnosed with polycystic ovarian syndrome um, or might suspect it, they're almost always insulin resistant. That's almost always um, a key factor of it. There are other markers for insulin resistance, such as, um, you know, sort of being an apple shape. Like when you have excess weight, you typically carry it around your middle instead of um, around your hips. And, um, you know, women who are able to correct their insulin sensitivity, who are able to improve it, um, you know, sometimes this is with medication, if that's what a doctor recommends, or um, I've seen other women do it by changing their diet or increasing physical activity. Um, a lot of them will see an improvement in their milk supply as well. And um, this is where, this is kind of a new frontier in the research where um, whether insulin resistance is actually connected to hypoplasia or insufficient glandular tissue, which is also um, just referred to as IGT. So this is when the breasts don't fully develop. So the glandular tissue that's supposed to make milk is either absent or there's not enough of it there. So um, if a mom is also insulin resistant, her breasts might actually be big, but they could have some of the physical markers of hypoplasia, which were defined for the lactation world in a study of 34 women in 2000 by Huggins, Peacock, and Morellis. Um, so hypoplasia refers to an underdevelopment of a body part. Like when I was first doing this research, I would Google hypoplasia and find like dental hypoplasia, like hypopla like underdevelopment of the tooth enamel or renal hypoplasia, which is where the kidneys don't develop all the way. So hypoplasia can refer to anything, you know, any part of the body that doesn't fully develop, but I'm talking about breast hypoplasia. Um, so there are breasts that look, that have the characteristics of underdeveloped breasts, but they do make plenty of milk. And in that Huggins study, um, about a third of them were actually able to exclusively breastfeed with support. Um, and then, so it's hard to sometimes tell just by looking at breasts whether they're going to produce or not because um, women with large breasts, even breasts that might be described as voluptuous, um, might have some of those markers of glandular insufficiency, but they're a lot more subtle. So, um, you know, we might see them, you know, we might not, think that those breasts look like they are going to have trouble making milk until they actually do. So um, there are a few theories about why um, the breasts don't fully develop, um, so why we might have insufficient glandular tissue, and they all relate to the windows of time when breasts are supposed to develop. So that first time in a female's life is before she's even born, when she's in her mother's uterus there's cell differentiation that must occur so that certain cells become breast cells that will then later on develop into glandular tissue. So there's some research to suggest that this doesn't happen sometimes. So if, if the mother's mother, so the mother, in, the mother who's carrying that baby who eventually becomes the mom with low milk supply, if she's carrying um, a, a particularly high toxic load, um, 
you know, that might be uh, a risk factor for her after she's born and grows up not uh, having enough glandular tissue. And this is, um, you know, I've had a lot of moms ask me, like, oh, my mom smoked when she was pregnant with me. Could this be the reason my breasts don't work? But it's really more like um, very, very extreme and severe exposure to environmental toxins, such as in um, farm communities where there's um, a high, um, you know, like pesticide spray mm-hmm. or sometimes um, uh, in areas where there's a history of, like, say, um, the production or the uh, incineration of certain products. So, like, dioxin is one of the chemicals that might be an issue. Um, But, yeah, so if a mom is, you know, if a woman is carrying a really high toxic load, like if she's got a lot of these particular endocrine-disrupting toxins in her body when she gets pregnant, that female developing baby may have um, issues with glandular development later. But now, more frequently, and I think this is, this is, this is definitely uh, more common uh, in what we're seeing population-wide right now is breasts develop during puberty. And this is when this insulin issue might actually be affecting glandular growth and development. So in addition to insulin preventing existing glandular tissue from doing what it's supposed to do um, after the baby is born, it may also interfere with breast growth. And that's you know, we see that in some animal studies, and we think we might be seeing it in humans, but it may be too early to tell for sure. Um, so the breasts aren't ready during pregnancy to take and use those hormones of pregnancy to finish their development. And then when the baby is born, the milk supply just doesn't happen robustly. It doesn't happen the way it's supposed to. So most of these women report having no breast changes during their pregnancy, so no breast sensations, no warmth, no increases in size, no tingling. You know, a lot of us, we can remember, like, you know, one of the first ways we knew we were pregnant was, um, you know, just sort of, oh, my gosh, my breasts, you know, in the shower, you know, the water hitting our nipples. They hurt so much. They were so tender. Yeah, I knew the first day. (laughs) (laughs) Like the day after, my breasts were different. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So these breast changes or sensations Um, A lot of these women, you know, again, we're looking sort of retrospectively after they've had the milk supply issues. So it's really hard to assess whether, you know, how many women don't have these breast changes but go on to make a full milk supply because they're not coming to tell us, you know, hey, I'm just like them, but I made plenty of milk. You know, we're only really looking at the ones, you know, trying to find some common factors in the ones who – who aren't producing enough milk. So it's a research challenge for sure. But, um, you know, after the baby is born, these women tend to notice like patches or spots that get, in, that get engorged. But overall, they don't really notice much going on in the way of sensations or feelings that their breasts get full, even after a long time between feedings or times when they express milk. Mm-hmm. That. That's certainly a lot of different reasons, but in part, they seem to come back to recurrent themes that we've seen here on the show. And it's like mainly the importance of paying attention to nutrition and environmental exposure to toxins from basically as soon as you can and working with a knowledgeable care provider to assess your individual situation because 
Well, basically, until you're there and somebody's paying attention to it, you it seems like you won't know um, if this is something that's going to affect you or not. Right, exactly. And it's so, it can be really difficult to be in that situation where you really want nothing more than to exclusively breastfeed your baby and then to sit there and wonder, like, is this because of something I did? And, um, you know, that's not, when I work with families that are going through this, I really try and emphasize for them, like, let's just, you know, let's just work with what you have now. And, you know, for some families that's, um, you know, really maximizing the breastfeeding relationship. So these are women who would choose to breastfeed even if nothing was coming out of their breasts at all. Like they really value that mothering at the breast aspect. And then there are other families that really just want to focus on providing as much breast milk for their babies as possible. Mm-hmm. Right. Um Diana, if the listeners want to learn more about what you're doing, your book, or getting in contact with you, or, you know, how can they do that? Um, well, they can definitely check in with my blog, which is at dianaibclc.com. And um, my book is available via Preclaris Press. And I would be happy to share the link for that with you so that if anybody is um, particularly interested in uh breastfeeding with insufficient glandular tissue, they can check into that. Yes, and we'll definitely put it in the show notes, any and all links. Thank you. Thank you so much for being on the show and clarifying um, quite a bit about, you know, busting the myths about low milk supply and that it is more common than we think and more complex as well. So thank you so much. Thanks for having me. It was great to be here. Mamas, I love to hear from you, so share with me your thoughts, and if there's a certain topic you'd like to know more about, let me know. Stay in touch by following Birthful on Facebook or Twitter. Even better, become a part of the Birthful community by subscribing at birthful.com. You'll get access to bonus episodes and other exclusive goodies. I'm Adriana Lozada. Please join me next week when I'll talk to another maternity pro here at the Birthful Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Hey, Mighty One, did you know that if you started listening to one birthful episode per day at the start of your pregnancy, your baby would be about three months old before you got through all of them? That is so much birthful. So to ease us into the summer and to help you catch up on your listening, we're going back to releasing one episode per week instead of two. Now you know.